After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official who his son lay sick at Capernaum. When, his, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to sick. Unless, the peop, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The, the royal official said, sir, come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his, his servants met him and the, with the news that his boy was alive. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Thank you, Justin. And I hope you leave your Bibles open. Uh you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew. You can leave your Bible open to John chapter 4. We're going through the Gospel of John. Remember the theme verse for John, uh, John's Gospel, John 20, verse 31. It says, you know, he did a lot of, lot of things that, you know, they couldn't write everything that's in this book, but these things are written. He said, these things, I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so, uh, you know, I think Jesus probably did a lot more miracles. I mean, this is, you know, the second miracle that John records, but he probably did a lot more than just two up to this point. But this is the second one that he records so that, you know, we could read about it and understand it and come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. The first miracle he did at Cana in Galilee Remember, it turned the water into wine. And the second miracle, uh, he also spoke it from Cana, but he healed a kid in uh, Capernaum, about 17, 15 miles away, just with his word. And so we're going to go through this text together. And so I want you to follow along. Uh, let's set the stage and, and point out some, uh, first of all, let's point out some strange things that I think need to be explained. Verse 43 Jesus has just spent two days in Samaria, and now he's leaving for Galilee. And I tell you, that time in Samaria was awesome. You know, verse 39, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Never underestimate the power of a testimony. Never underestimate just telling your story of how you have encountered God and what God is doing in your life, whether it's salvation uh, 50 years ago you know, how he saved you or what he's doing in your life like last week. You know, it seems that the whole town of Sychar was turning to Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior of the world. And the focus there is not on his miracle working power, but it's on his word. Verse 42, look at verse 42. We have heard him for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is a, a better response than anything Jesus had gotten among his own Jewish people, which is kind of strange. You know, Galilee is where uh, Jesus grew up. We're going to be seeing Galilee, and he grew up in Nazareth, remember? He was the Jesus, the Nazarene. 
And about 10 miles north of Nazareth was Cana, right? Cana, where he turned the water into wine. That's back in chapter 2 that we covered. And about 15 miles east of Cana is this town called Capernaum, where the official with the sixth son in this story lives. And so Galilee is Jesus' homeland in a very special sense. And he's leaving Samaria, which is not his homeland, and he's turning now to his homeland, to his own stomping grounds. And so now here's the first strange thing I think that needs to be explained. Verse 44, it begins with the word for. And that means the verse is a reason for why Jesus is going to Galilee. It says, after the two days he departed for Galilee, verse 44. In some version, NIV, it says now. Some version says for, or like because. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And so I take John to be saying that Jesus intentionally goes where he's less honored than in Samaria. He's coming again to his own people, knowing that they do not understand and that they don't honor him for who he is. And this is nothing new because way back in John chapter 1, verse 11, you know, the, sa- the stage is set for this kind of a strategy. It says, he came to his own and what? His own did not receive him. And so the argument of verse 44 seems strange to us. You know, go to a place because they'll probably misunderstand you. Go to a place because they'll probably reject you. But it wasn't strange to Jesus. It was part of the plan from the very beginning. And he, I think, intends to keep offering himself to his own. And overall, his own will not receive him. And this will, in the end, get him killed. And this is why he came, to be killed, to die in our place, to die on the cross. The second strange thing that I think needs explaining is the way verse 44 connects us with what follows. He goes to Galilee, his own people, because he expects no honor there. Now in verse 45, it says this. So therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What? I mean, this is not what we expect. They're supposed to dishonor him, according to verse 44. You know, how can John say, you know, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, therefore they welcomed him? That's why I wrote down welcoming, question mark? The answer is that welcome, the welcome or the reception is not really what it looks like on the outside. There's a kind of receiving Jesus that I think has no true honor for his person. It's just kind of an interest, you know, in his signs and in his wonders. And this is not new. Listen, in John's gospel, we've seen it before. I mean, do you remember way back in John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25? It says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And then verse 25, and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. So it says they welcomed him, but did they? John 2 says they believed in him, but did they? That's why I wrote welcoming question mark. That's why I wrote believing question mark. They believed, John says, but this was not the kind of belief that Jesus accepted. It was just kind of an excitement with all the miracles and 
And it's not what they pointed to. You know, they pointed to him, his beauty, his excellence, his greatness and glory as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son, and the Savior of the world, the things that the Samaritans saw in Cana. Now, another illustration of this false kind of faith or this superficial welcoming and believing or receiving of Jesus is his brothers. I mean, look at John chapter 7. We're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, but I'll just read to you John 7, 3 to 5. It says, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not e- for not even his brothers believed in him. So <laughs> they believed he could do miracles. And they were eager for him to show these miracles to the whole world. But John says in verse 5, they talked like this because even his brothers did not believe on him. He comes to his own. He comes to his own brothers, and they do not receive him. Oh, they think they're receiving him. Just like the people in Galilee think that they're welcoming Jesus. But they don't understand him. They don't have eyes to see. And so they don't honor him, even though they make a big deal of him as this miracle worker. And that's what we're seeing in John 4, 45 to 48. It says, they welcomed him, yes, but then it says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They welcomed him because they had seen his works of power in Jerusalem. Jesus is coming to these very people knowing that this is their attitude. And when John mentions Jesus is coming to Cana in verse 46, he draws our attention to the fact that this is the place that he had done his first sign in Galilee by turning the water into wine. Now you might think that John is kind of turning our attention away from this sign-seeking attitude of the Galileans when he tells us that the official shows up here at the end of verse 46. But not right away. In fact, he's going to make his strongest indictment against the Galileans right here in verse 46. Listen to this. It says, at, And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you, and it doesn't mean you, the official, you, plural, unless you all, You all in front of me, unless you see signs and wonders, you all, not just the official, you all will not believe. So let's talk about the official. This nobleman. Was he a sign seeker or a savior seeker? Jesus does not address the man only, like I just said. He addresses the whole group he's been talking about, the whole region of his hometown. And now he says very clearly what I've been trying to talk about. Verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You're sign seekers. You are wonder worshipers. You say you believe, but your belief like the folks in Jerusalem in John 2, 24, and like his brothers in John chapter 7, verse 5, is not a real belief that honors me. We can call it belief, but it's not the kind that saves. 
It's not the kind that changes and transforms. It's not the kind that unites you to me as one who sees and loves me as the Son of God, who is full of grace and truth. In fact, it dishonors me. So verse 48, I think, is the most explicit indictment of all, along with verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, what about this official? Was he in the crowd who believed but didn't believe? Believed as a sign seeker but not as a savior seeker? A lover of Jesus' power but not a lover of Jesus' person? It seems to me that Jesus is just kind of testing him. It's like a test. The official is asking for a miracle for his dying son. In a crowd where people love to see miracles and he seems to be asking for the same reason any unbelieving person would love to see a miracle. I have a health need. Fix it. Not I have a sin. Forgive it. And give me the power to live for you. Unbelievers don't love God. They use God. So Jesus bluntly says to the man, it says that Jesus said to him, to him, in verse 48, that he and the other Galileans are sign seekers. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. I'm not against signs and wonders at all. Not at all. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I take it to be a test, kind of like the Syrophoenician woman Remember who pleaded for her daughter and Jesus kind of rebuked her? I think it was in Mark chapter 7. You should read about that. When he says, you know, we don't give uh, children's bread to the dogs. <laughs> but it turned out to be a test. And how does the official respond to Jesus' rebuke? I mean, he doesn't even comment on it. He just repeats his request. Look at verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. See, neither Jesus nor John comments on the man's sincerity, Jesus simply gives him a gift. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. John says still in verse 50 that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And what's so amazing about this is that the man had asked Jesus to come with him. But when Jesus just spoke, your son will live, the man obeyed without a question. He believed and he went. He did not insist on seeing the miracle. He didn't complain that Jesus would not come with him. And amazingly, he simply left, John says, believing. And I'd like to think that at that moment of seeing Jesus speak in such an authoritative way and a sovereign way, in spite of his accusation, something woke up in that man. He was awakened by the Spirit of God. He saw something more than just a miracle worker. He and his whole household, it says, believed. Kind of like the woman, you know, she went and told the whole town, and many believed because of her testimony. The next day, we get this confirmation of the healing at the very hour when Jesus spoke the day before. And the confirmation, I think, reestablishes the man's faith, and his household believes also. They all Believe. Look at verses 51 to 53. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them to, the hour he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will leave. 
and he himself believed, and all his household. So was his faith that mere uh, sign-seeking kind of a faith? Well, it, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like the guy passed the test. And who is this guy? Uh, he's called an official. I think in some versions it says he's a, a nobleman. And in verses 46 and 49, uh, this word official or nobleman, it literally means a royal one. It means you're connected to the king in some way. And the king-like fever, uh, figure over Galilee was Herod, Herod Antipas. And he was a wicked guy, a wicked man, remember? He had John the Baptist put to death, cut off his head. Calling this man a royal one or a royal official, John makes a connection with this court. And so maybe John's point is this. Yes, this man believed, but he's more like the Samaritans than like the hometown folks whom Jesus criticizes as sign seekers. And so his faith may be an added contrast to Jesus' own kind who did not honor him. So let's just step back for a minute. What's the main point of this story? What's the main point of the text? What is the writer John? What's he doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's doing the same thing he's been doing all along. He's doing the same thing he's been doing over and over and over. The main thing he's doing, he's showing us the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of Christ by this amazing, astonishing miracle. But as part of that, John wants to help us overcome obstacles, really, in seeing the glory of Christ and the way he does this is by showing us the kinds of things that really keep us and keep people from honoring Jesus Christ. Verse 42. 42 tells us what stood in the way of a true understanding of Christ and a saving belief in him. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. There is something about being part of Jesus' home that actually hinders their faith. Now, none of us is part of Jesus' hometown, so you might think, well, this doesn't apply to Calvary, this doesn't apply to us, Dave, but the inner, I think, sinful temptations or impulses that made it hard for his own people to receive him and to honor him, those same impulses might be in you. Those same impulses might be in me. Those same impulses might be in us. And what are some of them? First of all, we could say attachment. Attachment to someone special. Kind of a vicarious sense of importance. The people could say that this great miracle worker grew up in their town. This makes them want for him to do more miracles. And so they honor him, quote, they honor him in that way. But why do they want him to do these miracles? Because the more he does, the more their attachment feeds their ego. They don't see this, the, the glory and just humble foot-washing service. They don't feel the need for his grace anymore. They use him. His power and his fame feeds their pride. And so they don't honor him for who he is, even though they think they are honoring him. I think this is very much alive in the church today. And I think it can infect us. And it can keep us from knowing Jesus the way he really is. We can become attached to a church, a denomination, a movement, a music style, a person, or a ministry 
in a way that starts to feed our ego. And it'll seem justifiable because, you know, it's Christian. And suddenly we begin to want this Christian thing to thrive, not for the glory of Christ, because it feeds our ego. And when that happens, it becomes harder and harder and harder to see Jesus for who he really is, the one who saves us by grace alone, by faith alone, who calls us into this lowly, you know, towel and basin, servanthood type posture in the Christian life. But not only attachment, think of entitlement. Entitlement can keep us from seeing the glory of Jesus, a second hometown impulse that may be in us, though we are not part of Jesus' hometown, is this, you know, sense of entitlement, you know? He's from our hometown, so we get first dibs, or we get these special dibs, you know? And how this mindset, I think, is still with us, and it just kind of creeps and crawls right into our souls. If you ever start to feel entitled in yourself to the blessings of Christ, you are falling away from grace. It's like uh, saying that you deserve blessings. You've earned them. You know, a sense of deservedness or entitlement will keep us from knowing the real Jesus. We will not honor him for who he is if we slip into this mindset. You know, Jesus, you owe me. Look at all I've done for you. You owe me. A sense of entitlement reflects a falling away from grace. You don't get grace anymore. You don't understand it. Attachment, entitlement, a third, almost the opposite of the first two, but that's how, you know, sneaky and subtle Satan and sin is, is a sense of, we could say, over-familiarity with Jesus. This man is one of us. You know, we know his mother. We know his brothers. He's always been so ordinary. How can he be what he claims to be? That same mindset can be in us. We're so familiar with the Bible. We're familiar with Jesus. We've heard all the stories. We're familiar with Christianity that it can't really shock us anymore. We've got Jesus all caged up. He's on a leash. We're telling him what to do. He can't surprise us anymore because we think we've got them all figured out. We're too familiar with Jesus. Too familiar. He can't do anything really mind-blowingly powerful anymore. Owing how we need to guard against these uh, three impulses in our own souls. Uh, The first two, the pride of attachment and then the sense of entitlement. I think they minimize his grace. And the third, over-familiarity with Jesus, it minimizes his power. You know, we minimize his grace, we minimize his power. And in conclusion, notice that this is exactly what John wants us to see in the healing of this official son. He wants us, he wants to help us to overcome these blinding impulses and to see the grace of his power his greatness, his mercy, his might, the might of Jesus as he heals his dying boy. So what does this miracle tell us about Jesus? First of all, Jesus is gracious. 
Boy, aren't we glad about that. You know, he heals this child in a very unbelieving atmosphere. I don't think there was a whole lot of faith going on there. The first thing he says to the official when he pleads for his son is, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. In verse 48, Jesus does not commend the man or the people around him. He's kind of provoked by this sign-seeking false faith that abounds in his hometown. It abounds in Galilee. And in that context, he gives the free gift of healing. And he gives the gift to a man that he's never met who has attachments in some way, probably with the, the court of that wicked Herod Antipas, and who says nothing about the person or the power of Jesus. He just wants him to come, come, come. In other words, when Jesus decided to heal this boy, it was grace, it was undeserved love, it was unmerited favor. He was not looking at anyone's merit. He was not looking at anybody's works. It was free. It was a gracious gift, you know, and way back to chapter one, we've seen his glory, glory uh, full of grace and truth, and from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace upon grace, and if you have the pride of attachment or the sense of entitlement, you won't be able to see this. You have fallen from grace. Jesus is gracious. This miracle also tells us that Jesus is powerful. He's able to do a lot more than you can think or even pray for, says Ephesians verse 20 of chapter 3, right? He's powerful. John wants us to see not only the grace of his healing, but the power, the power of his healing. The boy was dying. He had a fever. The power of Jesus to heal is seen in the fact that he did it with, with just a word. He just said. He spoke. He said, go, your son will live. Verse 50. And at that one word, the the, chem, the physical chemistry of that boy's body changed. The power is seen in that distance really isn't a hindrance either. I mean, the boy was 15 miles away in Capernaum. He could have been 15,000 miles away. It would not have mattered. When Jesus speaks with authority, there are no spatial limitations to his power. And the power of his healing is seen in the fact that it was Immediate, And John draws special attention to that. They say in verse 52 that he recovered in the seventh hour. That's 1 p.m. the day before. And then John says in verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. At the very moment that Jesus spoke, it was done. Do, do we believe that he can still do that today? And the Bible says, Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. A dying boy healed with a word. Over a distance at once, such is the power of Jesus. Grace and power, mercy and might. Again, my favorite verse of healing in the Old Testament, Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent forth his word and he healed him. We beheld his glory. John wrote at the beginning in his prologue, glory as the only son from the Father, and from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. May the Lord remove all pride, and all entitlement, all blinding familiarity, and reveal to us the glory of his grace and the power of Christ. And what should our response be? You know, faith in his word. 
faith in his word. You see the progression? This man begins with kind of a crisis, a crisis faith, we can call it. He was about to lose his son. He had no other option, really, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people come to Jesus with their crises, and he didn't turn them away at all. And then the official, the nobleman's uh, crisis faith, it also it became like a confident faith. And it says that he believed the word and he had peace in his heart. He was able to even delay his trip home knowing that the boy was out of danger. He took Jesus at his word. Jesus said, your son will live. I love that little slogan or cliche. You know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it forever. So his confident faith, then it became a confirmed faith. The boy had been completely healed, and the healing took place at the very time when Jesus spoke the word. It was this fact that made a believer out of the nobleman and his household. He believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and then he shared his faith with his family. And so the crisis faith became a confident faith, which became a confirmed faith, which then became a contagious faith, like that Woman at the well, she was so contagious, she was so alive with her encounter with Jesus, she just had to spread the word. And so he had a contagious faith and he shared his experience with others, especially his family. That's the story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> What's your story? What's your story? Remember John said he was writing this gospel, John 20, 31, hey, these things I've written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that by believing you might have life in his name. Can we say with the hymn writer, hey, I love to tell the story. I love to tell my story. It's kind of like the first miracle, the woman at the well. She went into that town of Sychar, and she told everybody, and many, many believed because of her testimony. And then like the second miracle, this official son, you know, completely healed by the word. He and his whole household believed because I think that official just, just, just had that contagious Faith, and I pray that our crisis faith will become a confident faith. And that confident faith will become a confirmed faith. And that confirmed faith will become a contagious faith. That is my prayer. And would you bow with me in prayer as we receive God's tithe and our offering? God, I just thank you for the reality of who you are, that you're still changing lives, you're still healing people, you're still doing signs and wonders. Not that uh, we... Um, would receive glory, but that you would get glory, that people would uh, be amazed by who you are, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. And so, Lord, we come to you, uh, worshiping you, even uh, at this part of the service with our tithes. We want to bring you the whole tithe, God. We don't want to bring a half a tithe or itsy bitsy tithe. We want to bring the whole thing into the storehouse, Lord, so that you would have honor and glory. We could honor you with the first fruits of our lives, Lord. And so that you would be faithful to your own promise, that you would open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, such a big blessing that we can't even receive it. Sure, physical blessing, but spiritual blessings. Lord, that you just pour out blessings so that we might be a blessing to others that live around us. Lord, the lost, the least, the lonely, that we could continue to make you known in our community. Lord, renew the vision that you have given us, Lord, to want to know you and to make you known.
So, Lord, uh, we commit this offering time to you and pray that we would worship you as we bring your tithe to the storehouse and bring you offerings. Lord, humbly laying them at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.